Well, good morning, friends, and thank you for joining us for our service online today. I'm David Beatty, one of the pastors here at River Oaks, and some months ago, we planned for today to be our local mission Sunday, and if we were all gathered here, our church would be full of special guests. Missionaries around our coffee bar would have uh, booths and tables set up so we could learn more about their ministries, but of course, we can't do that today. But because of your continuing faithful financial support of our church, I'm happy to let you know that we are still able to continue fully supporting all of our uh, missions and ministries, both locally and internationally. In addition to that, we're beginning this week a special food drive. Uh, Brian, Pastor Brian Edmonds will tell you a little more about that at the end of the service, and you'll also find a special tab about that on our website, but we're excited to be able to provide what we hope will be a really significant amount of food and resources for our local uh, food bank. Thank you again for your faithful support of our church. I want to ask you to join me in something else in this season in which we find ourselves. I don't think God is calling us as his people just to get through this time, just to endure it, but rather to grow through it. And I want to ask you to join me in making a commitment to pray at least five minutes every day with at least one other person, somebody else in your home or somebody you pick up the phone and, and, and talk to over the phone, five minutes daily for a greater work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in our church, in our community, and in our nation. So that when we've come through this time, we'd be experiencing a greater work of the Spirit of God in our lives, church, community, and nation. Would you join me, please, in that? Now, Pastor Sonny is going to come and uh, bring the message today uh, from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah as we continue our one-story emphasis I'd like to read the scripture passage today from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. 
They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Um, So nice to be with you this morning, even though we're online and You know, the Apostle Paul said many times that he longed to see the people in his churches, and we also do that with you. We we long for the time that we're together uh, again. And as we continue our series on the one story, I'd like to pray this morning before we look at the book of Nehemiah. So, Father, we give you thanks, Lord, for this time together as we look into your word, as we see Jesus through every page of our Bible. And so, Lord, I ask this morning that your spirit be at work. And Lord, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing unto you, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I was talking to Pastor Wes about some of the Old Testament stories that we've been covering in our current series And you know, when we read these stories, I've heard many people ask questions like, well, why did God do that? Or why would God allow that to happen? And Wes said something I think is very interesting and very important as we approach our study of the Old Testament. We must remember that the events that we find in the Old Testament are simply God fulfilling his purpose and his promise to his people to protect the promised seed that was going to come through the nation of Israel. And that promised seed is Jesus. Jesus was sent to save us from our sins once and and for all and give us eternal life. And today, God's promises for his people are complete in Jesus. As we see in 1 Peter 2.9, we are called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So whatever questions that we might have, we should be thankful as people of Jesus, people of the Lord, people of the kingdom of God on everything that he did for us and protecting that seed and bringing Jesus to us. You know, as we've looked at our Study, have you noticed in our one series, one story series, have you noticed how the Israelites have just over and over, they've, well, they've fallen short of God's instructions to them. And their failure has, it, had, it left them wandering in the desert for 40 years and not entering the promised land that God had given them. And when they finally do enter the land, we know that eventually they start to sin against God again and their disobedience. And we see that in the cycle of judges. In the book of Samuels, they reject God as their king and they cry out for an earthly king to rule over them. Well, we know how it goes for the nation of Israel because in the end, even the kings like the Israelites fall short of obeying God's commands. 
Then the nation of Israel becomes divided. It's defeated by their enemies and they're taken into captivity by the Babylonian Empire. And so the results of their disobedience has left the people scattered throughout the region. The temple of God has been destroyed and the city of Jerusalem now lies in ruins. You know, to say that the people of Israel were were in a hard place, that would be kind of an understatement. But I keep going back to Wes's words. All this is just God's promise to his people in protecting the seed to come, that seed being Jesus. You know, as we look at the story of God in the Bible and how it continues to unfold, but now we find that Israel is in captivity. They've been there for almost 70 years when suddenly the Persian Empire defeats the Babylonians. And we know that God moves on the heart of King Cyrus, a Persian king. We see his great mercy. He releases the people from captivity and they're allowed to return to their homeland, to Israel, to Jerusalem. You know, in the book of Isaiah, which was written about 160 years or more before Cyrus's reign, the prophet foretells that God would do this, that he would use Cyrus as his instrument. Isaiah says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of its temple your foundation shall be laid. See, God keeps his promise. Two weeks ago, Pastor Beatty spoke about the book of Ezra, and we learned that Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book, and they were divided sometime around the ninth century. Now, both books are very similar in nature because they both speak about how God is rebuilding the nation of Israel. Ezra speaks about the rebuilding of the temple and, and, and talking about worship, reinstating worship. And Nehemiah, well, it talks about rebuilding of the walls that have laid in ruins. Today, as we come to the book of Nehemiah, the temple has been rebuilt, but the walls of Jerusalem have laid in ruins for over 140 years. Look at the two pictures of the on your screen. The first one here, this is a portion of Nehemiah's wall that was unearthed in Jerusalem in 2008. And you can see how it's just like a bunch of pieces kind of put together. If you compare it to the next wall, this is a wall in Jerusalem that stands today that was built in the 1600s. And it was made out of stone that was cut from a quarry. And it was very, very uh, it's beautiful, but you can see here even that it's war-torn in the city of Jerusalem today. See, the walls of a city during the Old Testament era, well, they represented the strength of the people that lived in the city, but also the strength of the God that they served. And see, the walls that Nehemiah built were never meant to be the ultimate defensive barrier Rather, they were more symbolic. Israel's walls were in ruins because of the sin of the people. And God had come in his mercy and he was restoring and rebuilding 
the walls and rebuilding the lives of his people and restoring their identity and their relationship with him. And this brings us today to our message. When God calls a Jewish man, Nehemiah, to a God-sized rebuilding project. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Nehemiah other than he was born during the Babylonian captivity and his name means Yahweh comforts. Now, we know that Nehemiah didn't choose to return to the land of his ancestors. He stayed as a servant or slave there in Babylon, serving the king. Now, why would he do that? Why would a man not want his freedom? I believe that the reason is, is that God had other plans for Nehemiah. He was preparing him to be a part of his purpose and his plans for his people. Now we know from Nehemiah 1.11 that he was a cupbearer in the service of the king Artaxerxes of Persia. A cupbearer, although a servant, he was also a high official in the royal court. One that had to have a lot of loyalty and trust for the king. This did not come easy. The king would often look for a long time for someone he can trust. And part of this was on account that in this time in history, there was always fear of plots against the king to kill him for power, to, to gain more power. The cupbearer's responsibility required him to guard against any poison getting in the king's cup. And Nehemiah was required to sample the wine before giving it to the king. This was not the safest of jobs. However, a cupbearer's closeness to the king gave him a unique position of great influence with him. Think about this. God had placed Nehemiah, a Jewish man, in one of the highest positions in the court, in the service of a Persian king to fulfill his promise and his purpose for his people, to protect that seed. And I believe what we find in, in Nehemiah are these three principles that he used in rebuilding the walls and the lives of the people in Jerusalem. And they all, I also think they apply to us today in the rebuilding of our lives. The first principle we see from Nehemiah is this, that we need to pray. See, prayer is the foundational tool that God uses in the rebuilding processes of our life. While Nehemiah was still in Susa in the summer palace enjoying his life as a cupbearer, and yes, he had a lot of comfort there because he lived in a palace. And while he was there, he had a visit from one of his Jewish brothers. We don't know if it was his blood brother or another brother from Jerusalem. And he inquires about the exiles who had returned. Now, it had been 90 years, about 90 years since the first exiles under Cyrus had returned to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, here's something that just, it breaks his heart. When he hears that Jerusalem and the walls are still in a state of ruins, well, it causes him to break down and weep. He mourns for days with fasting and prayer over the city and the people of Jerusalem. 
In Nehemiah 1.6, we find him praying a prayer of confession and intercession for his people. I pray now before you day and night for the people of Israel and your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. You know, when I read these words, I'm, I'm really convicted. I'm not praying like this, with this earnest prayer and daily over my own city. It's easy to pray for our church. Maybe if we all had that heart that we would pray for our communities, we would see a greater work of God in our midst, in Him rebuilding the lives of people. We also see in Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's life his understanding of God's great mercy and his faithfulness to keep his promise to his people. Listen to these words from Nehemiah 1.8 as God gives his promise to Moses. Remember the instructions you gave to your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And yes, that has happened. But if you return to me and obey my commandments, then even if your exiled people who are at the farthest horizons will gather them from there to bring them to my place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. That's God's faithfulness. See, Nehemiah knew that he had to do something to help his people in the city of his ancestors. But he didn't didn't rush into action Rather, he committed himself to prayer and fasting, asking God for favor with this king that he would ask help for, for the city. Now, we know from Ezra chapter 4, 18 through 22, that King Artaxerxes had previously stopped all the work in Jerusalem by an order. So it seems the reason that it could be very dangerous for Nehemiah to ask the king to change his mind on something that he had already decreed. See, a servant was never even allowed to address the king unless he was first asked. Nehemiah was waiting. And we know that he prayed for four or five months waiting on God, waiting on God's timing. Well, we know that God's purposes and His timing is perfect. Sometimes we don't think so because it seems to wait. Maybe there's a lot of time between our prayer and when God answers, but His timing is perfect. And one day when Nehemiah was preparing and bringing the king his wine, the king sees a sadness in his face. And the king asked him this question. He says, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of your heart. And look what Nehemiah writes. Then I was very much afraid. See, now was the time that Nehemiah had been praying for. God opens the door for Nehemiah to speak directly to the king regarding the condition of Jerusalem and its people. And then comes the big question from the king. What are you requesting? He said, what do you want me to do? And this was the pivotal point that Nehemiah had to give an answer. 
And we know from Scripture that he was very much afraid. So what, how does he answer the king? What does he do? Well, he, he reverts back to his prayer life. Nehemiah 2.4 says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. He throws up this prayer underneath his breath as he, before he answers the king with his bold request. You know, many times I think when we see a need, sometimes we just jump into action without really first seeking God in prayer, seeking his answer. And we need to learn from Nehemiah's life that waiting on God and seeking him in prayer, waiting on his timing and his plan is always best. So now comes this ordained time that Nehemiah has to make his request to the king. And he asked boldly. He asked for, ev- he asked for everything. And God's plans begin to unfold with great success. The king releases him from his duties. That turns out being about 12 years. He gives him a letter of permission to rebuild the city, a letter of protection, a letter to the government there. And he provides for all the money, all the material, and even a small army for his protection. Now that's what I call a God-sized stimulus package. (laughs) He provided everything. Everything. Just like Nehemiah. See, prayer is the foundational tool that God uses in the rebuilding of our life. But we have to wait and seek Him. That's the first principle. The second principle that we learn from Nehemiah is that we need to daily inspect the walls of our life. See, once Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, he doesn't just jump into things. Most commentaries believe he had never been there before because he was born in captivity and he was in the service of the king. And so he goes out at night all by himself to inspect the work that needs to be done. God, what do I need to do? How do I do this? This is, I've never been here before. What am I supposed to do? But he had to go out and inspect the work that needed to be done. And I believe the same principle applies to us today. You see, if we never inspect the walls of our hearts before the Lord, our walls may lie in ruins like those of Jerusalem, leaving us open to the attacks of the evil one. The book of Psalms, King David writes in one Psalms 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. So how do we inspect our hearts? How do we inspect our walls? I believe it's through daily prayer, spending time in God's word. And when we do that, see, it helps us to focus our hearts and our mind on the Lord Jesus, and it protects us from Satan's snares. But I know there's many people that do that. They pray and they read the scriptures and they feel helpless. Maybe because of the effects of their sin or their depth or their brokenness. They don't know where to begin. They feel all alone. They don't know where to turn. They're helpless. But see, this is where the body of Christ comes in. 
And like Nehemiah, when we find ourselves lying in ruins and we need, to, we need to reach out to others for help. You know, that's what Nehemiah did. In his rebuilding of the walls and the gates, he knew that it was going to be a huge undertaking. He couldn't do it by himself. He needed the help of God's people. Look in Nehemiah 2.17. We see him asking for help. You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so we will no longer be in disgrace. See, God has provided the body of Christ for us as a source of help and healing in the rebuilding of our lives. The Bible tells us that we're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to pray for one another. We're supposed to encourage one another. And we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. So today, if you find yourself that your walls are broken down, that they're crumbled around you, and you feel like your defenses are gone and you're being attacked on every side by the evil one, whispering lies into your ears. Well, spend, spend some time in God's Word. Pray. Seek His face. And ask other believers when needed. That's where God can really help us as we seek to rebuild our lives, as he's working in our lives daily. The third principle we find in Nehemiah is that we need to stand against opposition when it comes. We must understand that when God is, when he begins a work in us, opposition from the evil one will come. And like Nehemiah, we need to learn to stand against it. Nehemiah 2.19, you see, as soon as they begin the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, they are faced with opposition. We read in Nehemiah 2.19, but when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? See, these, these three men in this passage, they really represent the enemies of God surrounding Jerusalem. In fact, Sambalat's name means sin. And really, they didn't have that much in common. They were more concerned, more not about Jerusalem, but they were more concerned about protecting their own political upper hand with the Persian Empire. And so they joined forces in their opposition against Nehemiah. You know, we see the same thing happening of this joining of forces in the New Testament when the Sadducees and Pharisees and the Jewish leaders opposed the ministry of Jesus all the time. The thing to remember is that when God is at work in our lives, the opposition that we face really comes from the spiritual forces of evil. Look at the, what the Apostle, said, Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. 
See, the opposition that the people faced in Nehemiah's time is really no different than ours. These enemies of God, that where they mocked and ridiculed them regarding their faith, their service to God, and even their ability to finish the work that he had called them to do. One place they said even a fox, if it crawls up on the wall, would it knock it down? I don't think so. I know in my own personal life, when I told my friends years ago about my newfound faith, well, what their response was disheartening to say the least. Things like, man, are you crazy? Do you really believe all that Bible stuff? Or maybe this is just a phase you're going through. Mocking. Ridicule. But see, whatever mocking we may receive, it never compares to what Jesus endured for us. Then the other opposition that Nehemiah faced was physical harm. These enemies of Jerusalem plotted an attack against the workers. And we know that they worked with a trial in one hand and a weapon in the next. Today in our country, when God's at work in our life, we, we don't really experience physical harm, the threat of that. But that's not true in many places around the world. I have personally met people on the mission field because of the work that God had called them to and is doing in them. Their family has rejected them. They've been beaten and even threatened with death because of their work of God. And we know that Jesus faced great opposition during his whole ministry Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were always trying to destroy him, to discredit him, to catch him in some type of trap. Remember the Roman soldiers beat him and spit upon him and ridiculed him and mocked him at the cross that day. You see, Jesus stood against all that opposition in order to fulfill the plans and purposes of God for you and me. He's faithful to do that. His promises always prevail. And as believers today, we must be ready when we're faced with opposition to stand against it when God is at work in our lives. We must not allow the threats or even the words of others to place doubt in our hearts. We must have the same faith and resolve that Nehemiah has. We see in Nehemiah 2.20, when all this opposition comes, this is Nehemiah's response. The God of heaven will give us success. So what happens when we stand firm in our faith against persecution or opposition we face? Well, we see God's results for us. God's results for Nehemiah was not defeat, but success. The people of Jerusalem rebuilt about two miles of wall. Some say it was eight to nine feet thick and all the gates in about 52 days. And during this time, as Nehemiah was focused on the outside walls of Jerusalem, God was at work, working on the inside walls of his people, restoring them to himself. Rebuilding that relationship, rebuilding, rebuilding their identity as his people. 
For me personally, God's result is now walk with the Lord for 35 years and he's still working in my life every day. God's results for the people around the world who suffer persecution for their faith, well, they're still continuing their work. And the gospel is growing. In fact, in most of the places where the persecution against the church is the greatest, it's the greatest work of the gospel that we see around the world being done. And when we stand firm in our faith, we begin to see the promises for all believers that we see in Philippians 1.6. And it's this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it, until the, bring it to the day of completion of Christ Jesus. Whatever God starts, he finishes. And then finally, the most important, God's result is in that in the opposition of Jesus. See, he finished the work his father sent him to do. His work on the cross is now complete. However, he is still working each and every day in the hearts of us, his people, and others drawing him to himself, rebuilding lives every day. Every day. Now, although Nehemiah prayed a lot, He inspected the the work and the walls, and he stood firm against opposition. He also recognized that it wasn't him that was rebuilding the walls of the city. It was really God. We can apply these principles to our life, but we must never forget the source of the one who brings about change in our lives. And that person is Christ. We must remember that Jesus is the rebuilder of our lives today. And only he can do that. You know, in our one-story series that covers Genesis to Revelation, we, it reveals to us the work of Jesus in every page throughout the entire Bible. Shadows to substance. And we've been focused on the rebuilding of the walls that point to the work of Christ in our lives. But what about the gates? How do they play into this? How do they apply to us today? And I wanted to end today with something I found very interesting about these gates. See, their their Hebrew names have great significance. These gates of Jerusalem are symbolic of Jesus' work in our life and rebuilding them today. You'll see a picture of the old city of Jerusalem in the time of Nehemiah, and you can see all the gates there that were built. I don't want to address some of them with you this morning. The first gate I want to address is called the the dung gate, and this is where all the animal waste and the trash and filth was taken out of the city. And see, if you didn't do that, that trash and filth would cause disease and people would die. What this really points to is a sin problem that we're all born with. The Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our righteousness is like filthy rags. And we need someone to come in and take the filth out of our life, the sin out of our life. And only Jesus can do that. He's the only one that can remove it and make us clean. 
The next gate is called the sheep gate. This is the gate that, the gate that all the sheep went through that came into the city that would be sacrificed at the altar, at the temple. See, this gate points to the Lamb of God, Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice whose blood was shed on the cross for our sins. And this was Nehemiah's starting gate and the starting gate for all believers because it all starts with us accepting and knowing that Jesus sacrificed his life for us on the cross. And he removes our sin once and for all, for eternity. The next gate is called the fountain gate. And this reminds us of the woman at the well in John 4, uh, 4 thir 13, where Jesus tells her these, these words. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus not only takes away our sins, but he gives us eternal life with him in a place that he's called heaven, that he's there now preparing for us. Now, once we know that Jesus saved us and we know that we have eternal life, the next gate is called the fish gate. It rem it, remembering the words of Jesus to his disciples in Mark 1.17, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This symbolizes the fact that because of what Jesus has done for us, all believers are called to be a witness for Jesus in word and deed, to go out and share the gospel with others. The next gate is called the old gate, and it stands for truth. You know, truth in our country today has been so attacked and broken down. And they look at the things of the Bible and say, that is old truth. No, it's not. It's the only truth. See, truth today has been replaced with what is true for you personally. But see, the truth of the gospel in Jesus' word, well, they're unchanging. They never change, and they stand true today. And this is why the water gate, not the water gate in Washington, the water gate in Jerusalem, this is, why the, this is the only gate that did not need to be rebuilt it was still standing. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers, but the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And no matter what our culture says, we're to stand on his truth and God's word as believers. The next gate is called the valley gate. And this gate represents humility. You know, God speaks many times many times in his word against the pride of man. And he seeks to use people who are humble and gentle and meek in spirit. Jesus' greatest example of that is his humility where he gave his life for us even unto death. Now I found that this gate most often is in need of repair in the life of all believers, including mine. God calls us to walk in humility before the Lord, and to seek the needs of others over ourselves. That's being like Jesus. The next gate is called the East Gate. It's the same gate that the glory of God departed from the city of Jerusalem, as we read in the book of Ezekiel. 
the gate that Jesus entered on the night of his betrayal, the gate on Palm Sunday that he entered, and it's the gate that he'll come back in his glory. See, this gate talks about Jesus is coming back for his church. Are you ready for his return? When I was in Israel a few years ago, we had a guy that was 83 years old. He had been a guide in Jerusalem for 53 years. Each day, he walked us through the places and he read scriptures about Jesus' work. And anywhere in Jerusalem, you can see Jesus on, on everything. You read the Bible and things come alive. But here's a man for 50-some years saw the work of Christ and saw the effects of the gospel in his own land every day but didn't believe it. He was the sweetest guy. And when we came over top on the Mount of Olives and we overlooked the city of Jerusalem, it's a beautiful sight, very moving. And he looks at the east gate that's closed up now and he says, all that gate's been closed up for 500 years. It'll never be opened. Oh, they call it the beautiful gate or the mercy gate. And I went to him and I called him by name. I said, brother, that's the reason they call that the mercy gate or the beautiful gate. That's the mercy of God entered through that gate to die for your sins and my sins. And you see it every day. Don't be like that. Jesus is revealed to us in every page of Scripture. Throughout the whole Bible, we see him working. The last gate is the inspection gate. It seems the gate that is about the daily examinations of our life. It's where Jesus is going to inspect our hearts upon his return on the judgment seat of Christ, how's he going to find your heart? See, in the book of Nehemiah, we can see how God was at work in rebuilding the lives of his people through the walls. And we can see how God's work in the Old Testament is really just a shadow of Jesus' work in the New Testament and even today for us. And when we place our trust in Jesus, See, the walls that he rebuilds, they stand forever. And symbolic of Nehemiah's gates, God is at work in our lives today showing us his plan of salvation and how we're supposed to live for him on the foundation that he has built for us. And you'll see the gates come up again. I just want to close with this. Jesus is ready to begin a work in your life in rebuilding you. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus in your life and you need a foundation built for him to build upon. You can start that today. Would you allow him to enter the gates of your life? Because you see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to take away your sins as we see in the dung gate. Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, came to lay down his life for you to take your sins away and make you clean and give you eternal life 
a fountain that never runs dry. And we're supposed to stand on God's truth daily. Live a life of humility because Jesus is coming back. Are you ready for Jesus today? Are you ready for him to examine your hearts? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray today if there's anyone here who has uh, online that has never asked you to come into their life, Lord, that this would be the day. Lord, that you would start the rebuilding process in their life by laying the foundation of salvation as they reach out to you, as they seek you in prayer and ask for your forgiveness. And if that's you, you can pray right where you're at. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean. Lord, build your foundation in my life. And Lord, begin to rebuild me. Taking away my sins, making me clean, that I can live for you all the days of my life. And maybe you're a believer and you find yourself this morning that your walls need to be repaired. You can ask the Father, Father, would you help me to rebuild the things that the evil one has tried to destroy? Give me your strength and your mercy. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we see you on every page. We thank you, God, for keeping your promise, protecting that seed and watching over us. And we give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, the name above every name. In Jesus, the great rebuilder of our lives. Amen. Well, let us continue to worship as Wes leads us in our closing songs. I just want to remind you of the Hey, I'm Here cards online and the, the giving that you can do online. And if you please let us know if you need things. Uh, we would greatly love to help you in this time if you have needs. Even if you can't get out of your house and you need something, let us know. We want to pray for you and, and help you and be with you. And we long to see you again when this virus thing is really over. Lord bless you. See you next week.